0: As best we can tell, in the summer of 1957, Edmund Schulman traveled to a remote part of central California. Nearing the state's border with Nevada, he stopped in the White Mountains, now a part of the Inyo National Forest. And taking some tools with him, he set out for his goal, probably near the tree line at 10,000 feet above sea level. To uneducated eyes, Schulman's destination was an old twisted pine tree. Perhaps most of the trunk stood bare, stripped of bark, with only one little patch of green, showing that the tree still lived. Taking out his tools, Schulman would have started boring a sample. Here, high in the mountains, the winters are harsh, and the tree still grew, but only a little at a time. Its rings, small, and packed together, and sealed up with tree sap. The dense, resin-filled wood kept insects and fungus away. It preserved the tree from year to year, and from one century to the next for this tree, and many like it, were very old. The year after Schulman took the sample, he died, and another researcher, Tom Harlan, inherited the project and the job of counting those tiny rings. He numbered hundreds and then thousands of them. By the time Harlan was done, he'd found more than 4,700, and it made the tree famous. From its humble start as a little purple pine cone with a barb on its tip, This bristlecone pine now stood as the oldest known tree in the world. And with the fame came a new title. Some reporter or researcher or marketer trying to describe that ancient tree went back to a time when men lived to be ancient as well, to a time when human lives lasted for centuries. And that pine came to be called by the name of the oldest of those men, a man named Methuselah. The last episode spanned around 130 years of history. This one covers almost 900 more. And to tie that near millennium together, I want to focus on one person, Methuselah. Now, before I get too far into the story, I should take a moment and talk about lifespans. In this part of history, people lived for a long time. The fifth chapter of Genesis lists a genealogy of them, and you find men having children when they are over 100 years old. Of the 10 names listed in this family tree, only one dies a natural death before he turns 800. And that one only misses it by 23 years. Compare those ages to the modern record holder, Jean-Louis Calmeau. Born on a February day in 1875, Jean-Louis, an ancient grandmother, died in 1997 at 122 years old. At least, that's the official record. Some people have doubts. A 122-year lifespan is very long, And one theory argues this isn't the story of one old woman, but two. They say it's the history of a mother who died in 1934 at the age of 59, and a daughter who impersonated her for the next 63 years. 122 years is too long for some people to find believable, but Genesis takes it to another level. It says people lived for nine centuries. We have trouble comprehending that. Someone born 100 years before the Magna Carta was signed would only now be getting old. That's a lot to swallow. So, as you might expect, there are a few alternative explanations. The first idea says that the names Adam and Seth and the others in this list aren't referring to people, but dynasties. Think of it like the royal families from English history. There were the Plantagenets and the Tudors and the Hanoverians... That's the idea here, that this is a list of families, not individuals. But it doesn't hold up. Among other reasons, when a new dynasty is born, you don't often see the old dynasty living on for a few hundred more years. The second theory suggests that father in this family tree really means ancestor. This would be how people had children when they were over 100 years old, because they weren't having a son, but a grandson or a great-grandson. You see that pattern of skipping generations and genealogies in the New Testament, but it probably isn't true here. First, to say that it was an ancestor only explains how the children were born when that ancestor was old. It doesn't explain how the ancestor kept living for hundreds of years afterwards. And to take it a step further, If you look at the word used in the original language, the term in Genesis 5 is specific. It refers to a direct physical offspring, not some distant descendant. Genesis just doesn't leave much room for missing generations. Third, along with the father-doesn't-mean-father argument, there's another theory that says that year doesn't mean year. Instead, they say it refers to something shorter, like a month or a season. For instance, if someone lived 1,000 months, that's only about 83 years. That solves the lifespan problem, but it causes other ones. If these numbers all refer to months, it means some fathers had kids when they were an unlikely 65 months old or about five and a half years. If you try using seasons instead of months, people now have children as teenagers, but then they still live to be over 200 years old. And that leaves one final theory. This one argues that the ages aren't literal, but symbolic, and that the numbers aren't talking about lifespans, but something figurative. Part of this could be because the ages in Genesis 5 don't seem random. And it's true, if you look at the pattern of ages, it is strange. When I simulated getting something like that pattern of numbers, the chances of it happening were around one in 500,000. But that only makes the number unlikely. It doesn't make it symbolic. And there's a major problem with arguing these numbers are symbolic. No one knows what useful thing they symbolize. Instead, from context, it appears that Genesis wants us to treat these numbers literally. And that leaves us with the conclusion that, however unlikely, humans once lived for nearly a thousand years. Some of the skepticism about these long ages has more to do with us today than with what the Bible says. With advancements in science and technology and medicine, we like to believe humans are progressing, that we're living longer and longer lives than we used to. In reality though, that's only true of life expectancy, of how long we live on average. We've learned to treat diseases and take care of infections so we don't die young as often, but the upper limit is about the same as it was 2000 years ago. As much as it goes against what we'd like to hear, While we might have maintained a lifespan for the last two or three thousand years, we're still a long way from living for centuries, as people did right after creation. We don't know why lifespans were so long at this point in history. Some commentators guess that the climate was nicer, that people enjoyed better food and better weather. I'd imagine for a long time people didn't get sick. Illnesses come from toxins and bacteria and viruses and genetic mutations. The world didn't begin with those things. They took time to develop. And in the meantime, people had long, probably healthy lives. This memory isn't unique to Judaism or Christianity or Western philosophy. You get stories of people who lived to great ages in the history and mythology from other places in the world, too. For instance, in the Iranian Epic of Kings, written about 1000 AD, there are records of rulers who reigned for and 1,000 years. In documents from ancient Samaria, kings ruled for hundreds or thousands of years each. Josephus, the Jewish historian from around two thousand years ago, names a series of writers who included the stories of people with long lifespans in the histories they wrote, including Manetho from Egypt, Berossus from Babylon, a series of Greek writers including Hesiod, as well as the authors of Phoenician history and two others who state specifically that the ancients lived for a thousand years. To be clear, I'm not claiming these stories all have accurate history. There's a lot of legend and mythology in there. But what they give us is evidence that people in the past didn't think stories of long lifespans were untrue. They accepted it. And that brings me back to Methuselah, a little boy who was born about 550 years after Cain set out on his own. Now, truthfully, we don't know much about Methuselah. Genesis doesn't give us a biography of his life. It gives us a timeline, a list of Methuselah's ancestors and descendants. It says, when Adam was 130, Seth was born. When Seth was 105, Enosh was born. And then there's a string of people with ages. Enosh had Kenan, Kenan had Mahalalel, Mahalalel had Jared. Now we're getting close. Jared was Methuselah's grandfather. When Jared was 162, he had a son named Enoch. When Enoch was 65, Methuselah was born. This isn't a full family tree. We don't know the branches. It's just one line of people going down from Adam through Seth to Methuselah. And we don't know why we get this set of names and no one else. Scholars suggest each name on the list could be the name of the firstborn son, the family heir. That's possible. Later on in the Bible, the firstborn son inherited twice as much as any of their younger brothers, and they became the new family leader. But that's not the whole story. In fact, throughout the book of Genesis, the main characters in each story usually aren't the firstborn. Instead, this list of names might be due to another part of the birthright. When a father died and passed the leadership of the family on to one of his sons, that son also became the family worship leader, the one who set the example of following, honoring, and obeying God. That's who the main characters are in Genesis. And this list from Adam down to Methuselah could be the names of each of those people in the family. It could be a list of family worship leaders, perhaps not the oldest child, but the child most devoted to God, and the one who tried to lead others to follow God as well. And Methuselah, might have been the eighth of those men. Even if this is the case, though, for all their sincerity and faithfulness, Genesis is clear that none of these men measured up to God's plan. Right at the beginning of the chapter, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth end quote. Adam was made in the image of God, but then Adam sinned. Now he and all of his descendants carried the scars of sin. They didn't reach the standard God intended. Around the time Methuselah turned 13, Adam had his 700th birthday. I don't think we keep this in perspective. That's seven centuries of history Adam witnessed. If we had someone like that around today, someone born in 1320, they'd have been in their 30s at the start of the Hundred Years' War when English longbows were in their heyday. In their 40s, the Black Death, the plague, killed around half the population of Europe, but they would have survived it. The first books came off of Gutenberg's printing press as this person neared 140, and four decades later, the first rumors of a new land across the Western Sea spread with the return of Christopher Columbus. That all happened before this person turned 200. They still had 500 years of memories to go. There's the Protestant Reformation, the Spanish Armada, the English Civil War, the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War. That's what Methuselah and everyone else had. Adam was that person. And though Genesis doesn't say they ever met, that's what I'd guess. Because Methuselah probably didn't live that far away. Genesis doesn't give us enough information to make a good guess at how many people lived in the world at this point, but there are a few details that help us bracket it. First, for each of the people mentioned in the family tree, it says that they weren't only children. Their fathers had, quote, other sons and daughters, end quote. I know this probably just means there were other kids, but if you assume it's a literal statement, it means each mother would have had to have at least 6.9 children on average. That sounds like a lot in a modern context where the birth rate is around two children per woman. And it is more than the highest recent birth rate from the 1960s of around five children per woman. But it fits with what you find from the days of the American colonies, when seven to nine children in a family were common. And that would be near the low end. 200 years ago, women had these seven to nine children over 20 or 30 years. Eve and her daughters could have had kids for centuries. One father in this family tree in Genesis has children when he's over 500 years old. Altogether, you get a spectrum of guesses. Some writers say Adam and Eve had 30 children, or that they had 100 children. Josephus refers to an old tradition that claims they had 33 sons and 23 daughters. But those numbers would make for really large, probably unsustainable populations very quickly. So I'm going to assume every couple just had an average of seven kids. But remember, when I tell you these numbers, they're probably minimum values. And if that's the case, when Methuselah was born, there likely weren't too many relatives between where he lived and the home of Grandfather Adam. Even if all 400 aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins still lived in the area, even if they spread out and continued the tradition of working as shepherds and farmers, Methuselah would have been perhaps less than half a mile away. And that means... He could come and see Adam. He could come and learn all of Adam's 700 years of stories. Today we use pen and paper and computers and microphones to share stories. But most of those things are recent inventions. Personal computers are 50 years old. Even typewriters are only 110. Ballpoint pens appeared less than a century ago. Fountain pens go back just 50 years beyond that. All these things are recent. Before we had them, for about 1,300 years, writers scratched away with quill pens. These usually came from one of the five outer feathers on the left wing of a goose, or a swan if you had the money, because those feathers curved away from right-handed writers. But the curve of the feather wasn't the only irritation you had to deal with. To make a feather work as a pen, you first boiled the tip in water so it wouldn't shatter, and then carved and shaped it by hand with a pen knife. And even then, every time you dipped it in ink, it only held enough to write three to seven letters. Instead, the alternative to all of this hassle and expense was to just tell a story and have someone listen to it. And for most of human history, and even for most stories in modern times, that's what people did. They memorized stories and passed them down verbally as oral tradition. And that's probably how Methuselah learned the history of the world from Adam. Now, oral tradition is risky. Stories change, people forget details, they exaggerate. The way you tell a tale this year is different from the way you might tell it next year or the way you told it last year. But some of oral tradition's bad reputation isn't deserved because retelling history isn't just telling a story over and over. There's much more to it. In the 1930s, a couple of American researchers studied oral traditions in Yugoslavia. They wanted to understand how people who couldn't read or write could remember epic tales containing thousands of lines of poetry. Going over 1,500 examples, they discovered patterns. The stories were systematic. People used formulas and standard scenes and patterns. They used mnemonics. The sacred writings of Hinduism, the Vedas, are similar. They're some of the oldest religious texts in the world, but they began as oral traditions where the masters of the stories would make students memorize them going both forward and backward, focusing on exact pronunciation to make sure nothing changed. Adam could have used some of those same techniques, songs, rhythms, rhymes, and others to pass stories on to his kids. And he probably had the advantage of a good memory too, because Adam's mind, when it was created... Was perfect. And though things were breaking down, though we were 700 years into history, I think his recall was at least as sharp, if not sharper, than the best of our memories today. Think of savants you've heard of. They often have exceptional memories. One might remember entire books or tell you everyone they've met during their adult life. Stephen Wiltshire, a savant with a photographic memory, drew a 17-foot reproduction of the city of Rome in three days after just a 45-minute flight over it. We don't know what enables people to accomplish these things, but the capacity to remember that level of detail is somewhere in the human brain. And at this early point in history, having that sort of memory might have been normal. And if that wasn't enough, when Methuselah came to hear the stories, there could be eight generations of people sitting there listening to them being told. Eight generations that had heard these stories dozens, maybe hundreds of times before, who could catch and correct any mistakes before they were passed along. Imagine sitting in a circle with fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, all hearing Adam tell the stories of creation, of the Garden of Eden, of the tree of life, of walking with God. Think about the descriptions and details you'd hear of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, about the snake, with those glimmering eyes and glittering scales. That would be where you learned about how the world became what it was and the meaning and purpose of the sacrifices held outside that gate to the now forbidden garden. But Adam wouldn't have been telling these stories just to pass on a history lesson. There was a purpose here. For seven centuries, Adam had known that someday he was going to die. He'd spent 700 years watching the pain and suffering caused by his choice, caused by disobeying God. And I think he told these stories, the good ones and the bad ones, to make sure people learned the lessons he'd learned the hard way. Like any good father, Adam would have wanted his children and grandchildren to learn from his mistakes, to learn that happiness and joy only came from obeying God. And so... Year after year and generation after generation, I picture him gathering together the people who wanted to follow God and telling them those same stories again, hoping they would take the message to heart. And Adam had to feel that pressure more than ever when the stories turned to the sons he'd lost. The death of Abel was bad enough, but Cain's life was an ongoing pain. Adam probably didn't witness what happened to Cain after he left, But I'm sure he heard rumors, stories that whispered back, gossip that traveled secondhand about life off to the east in the lands where Cain had settled. We know only a few details of those stories. After Cain murdered Abel and abandoned God, he went east to the land of Nod, to the land of wandering. And apparently an unknown sister and perhaps children and his family went with him. Because the next detail we hear is that Cain had a son and began to build a city. It's odd to think of someone condemned to be a wanderer as building the first city mentioned in the Bible, but Cain might have started this city in part as a way to defy God. If the rest of Adam's family had a place to gather to worship God, maybe Cain wanted a place where people who hated God could gather together. And besides, the word here used for city isn't very specific. It could mean a settlement of any size. And this is early in history. Cain named the place after his own son. So this wasn't a metropolis. Initially, it had perhaps a handful of people, maybe a few dozen. I think of it as a village or trading post. And given Cain's fears that someone would find him and kill him, the settlement probably had walls. Humans have a long history of building forts. The first pilgrims in Plymouth did it. The colonists in Jamestown did it. The Roman army did it. When people come to a place they know nothing about, somewhere mysterious, maybe dangerous, they dig in, put up a barricade, post a guard, and fortify themselves. The Roman army did this each night when they were on the march. 10 men from every 100 would take a few hours and sometimes while under attack, put up a wooden stockade and dig a ditch to protect the army within. Walls are how people feel safe in an unsafe world. It's what you build when you're afraid. And this mention of Cain starting a city suggests that for all his defiance, Cain was scared of what the shadowy woods around him might hold. And it's true, there had to be a lot about the world that was unknown. Besides humans that might be coming for him to avenge Abel's death, there were the animals. After humans sinned, the whole planet suffered, including the wildlife. The animals began to change, they began to compete for resources, to defend their territory against one another. The Survival of the fittest began to matter. And these changes can happen quickly. In 1971, researchers in Croatia moved five pairs of a species of lizard from one island in the Adriatic Sea to another one without those lizards. Thirty-six years later, they documented what had changed. On this new island, the lizards had to eat more plants, and in less than four decades, The descendants of those original 10 developed larger heads and stronger jaws so they could crunch through the vegetation. On top of that, their digestive system changed, slowing down the passage of food so the plants were easier to break down. These animals adapted to survive. The same thing was happening in the woods surrounding Cain's new city. Originally, animals ate only plants, but at some point they learned to scavenge other animals that died. And then they would have learned to stalk and hunt and kill. During this time, animals would have become predator or prey. This might be when the plant eaters like sheep and goats developed those horizontal pupils that allowed them to see a panoramic view, that allowed them to look all around. Even as they bend their head down to graze, their eyes rotate. So the pupil is always parallel to the horizon, always watching for an ambush. But survival of the fittest is an arms race. As the prey adapted to survive, the predators adapted better ways of attacking. You can see this in the fossils we have. The dinosaurs, from the Greek for fearfully great lizard, approached half the length of a football field, were nearly 20 feet tall at the shoulder, and weighed at least 10 times as much as an African elephant. Many of them ate plants, and perhaps your biggest fear would be getting trampled. But then there were the ones Who didn't eat plants. Saber-toothed tigers had canines eight inches long. And it wasn't safe in the water either. In 1997, fossil hunters in Africa found the jaws of a crocodile nearly six feet long, suggesting the animal itself, when it was alive, could have been the length of a school bus. When you think of the forests filled with these massive animals, when you think of them fighting with one another, you would have built walls and fortified your settlement too. And then, maybe if Cain and his family were like people today, maybe they realized they could use those animals to their advantage. Humans have a long history of breeding animals to get the traits we want. From terriers to St. Bernard's, the 400 species of dogs we have today are evidence of that. We take a dog's innate senses and use them to help us. Dogs can see better in dim light than we can. They can hear up towards twice the frequency of human ears. Their noses are 10,000 times more sensitive than ours. Historians think the dogs, we now call Rottweilers, were originally bred by Roman armies to herd cattle when they campaigned in the forests north of the Alps. They took an animal and bred it to guard and protect their livestock. In short, they built another type of wall, a biological wall. And Cain and his family might've done the same thing, using every resource at their disposal to survive. And they did survive. When Methuselah was born, there might've been 400 descendants of Seth, but Cain was older and he may have started earlier. If so, he may have had 1,500 children and grandchildren. And though Genesis doesn't say, there's nothing to suggest Cain didn't live just as long as everyone else. So though his city started small, by the time Methuselah was a boy, It was probably the heart of earth's second civilization, the center of a culture founded in opposition to God. And those two branches of the family were bound to clash. We don't have a lot of information about this, but there is one curious comment in Genesis. Around a century or so after Cain goes his own way, Genesis talks about the world in the days of Adam's grandson, and it says, quote, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, end quote. This is an odd statement. It's not clear what call upon the name of the Lord means. Usually that phrase is connected to building an altar and performing some sort of formal public worship. But public offerings already took place with Cain and Abel. One commentary suggests that it means people were more devout, more sincere than they had been for a while. Perhaps there was a revival. But there's also another possibility. To call upon the name of the Lord might refer to being called by the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, the followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. And the same thing might have happened here. Someone might have taken the name of God, the name of the Lord, however God was referred to, and used it as a title for the people who tried to follow that God. And this might not be a name that Seth's descendants gave themselves. It might be a name someone else used to mock them. In the American Revolution, during the first major battle of the war, British soldiers sang a song named Yankee Doodle that insulted the American colonists, calling them backwards country folk who thought they could be fashionable with just a feather in their hat. The song intended to call the rebels Simpletons. But that particular battle, the Battle of Bunker Hill, went badly for the British and the American rebels adopted the song and began to sing it for themselves. They took pride in something meant to be an insult. And by the end of the war, Yankee Doodle was an unofficial national anthem of the new country. You can imagine the same thing happening over 5,000 years ago. The descendants of Cain seeing Seth's children worshiping God publicly and harassing them, mocking them, calling them names for their belief in God. And then Seth's children taking those insults as a badge of honor and being proud of the name they've been given. We don't know if it was public worship or a revival or a clash of cultures that caused men to call upon the name of the Lord in the days of Adam's grandson, but we do know the world was getting more cruel and more violent. When Methuselah was 187 years old, he had a son named Lamech, but this Lamech wasn't the only one in the world. Genesis also tells the story of another Lamech, one who perhaps lived off to the east, this one a fifth-generation descendant of Cain. He was something like a distant uncle to Methuselah, but not the kind of uncle you would want to visit. The first reference to him is the comment that he married two wives, one named Ada and the other Zillah. The names mean ornament or comfort. The focus is on beauty or earthly pleasure. Later on in the Bible, men marrying multiple wives is common, but here, it's unusual. Lamech might have been the first one to do it. He's at least the first person mentioned. But that's only part of the reason Lamech is infamous. He's also known for murder. Talking to his wives, Lamech says, quote, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. quote. There are a couple of pieces to this. The words Lamech uses to refer to what the other person did is how you would describe someone hitting you with a fist. And the word for what he did in response is how you would describe slaughter or murder. And it gets worse. The reference to young man sometimes means boy or child or maybe teenager. Lamech was injured by another man, and he didn't stop with reasonable self-defense. He slaughtered the other person. One commentary suggests this was the behavior you would expect from a blood feud. And then, at the end, when he refers to Cain's punishment, he might be arguing that his crime wasn't as bad since he did it in self-defense. But he's also boasting about what he's done. Rather than being ashamed of it, he's making fun of God's mercy to Cain. Lamech is saying that God didn't punish Cain, and he's using that lenience as permission to go out and murder without the fear of any consequences. We don't know if Adam knew of Lamech's boasts or not, but I imagine Adam could see the direction things were headed. He'd inherited a perfect world, and in just seven generations, it changed to a place that saw violence as glamour, to a world that loved pleasure. Think about how that would feel. Imagine reading the news headlines every day, looking down through the stories of war and murder and suffering, and knowing that all of those stories are because of a mistake that you made 900 years ago. Adam's life had to be a sad one. His near millennium of memories were full of pain. And now, 930 years after God told Adam what would happen, that promise came true. The year Methuselah turned 243, Adam died. This wasn't the first death in history. That was Abel. This probably wasn't the second because you can imagine with more than 20,000 people in the world and many of them part of Cain's society, there were other murders besides the ones we have recorded. But this death, the death of the man personally formed by God, had to be hard. Eve may have already died by this point. And if so, then Adam was the last eyewitness to what a perfect world was like. He'd experienced it. Everyone else just had the stories he'd shared. And now those stories were just a memory. We don't know what became of Adam's body. Historically, there are a lot of options. The Vikings used ships and either set them adrift or buried them underground. In India, Australia, and North America, People who died were placed on platforms above the ground, or in trees, and maybe buried later. The Greeks of 3,000 years ago burned bodies on open fires. The ancient Jews buried the dead in caves. But there is a pattern here. A lot of cultures bury the person underground. And it's an old practice. The Sumerians did it. The Egyptians did it. And that may be what happened with Adam. Remembering God's promise that Adam was made from dust and would someday return to the ground and become dust again, the eight surviving generations of Adam's children might have buried the body of the world's first man back in the earth God had formed him from. As the group broke up, I imagine their world felt emptier, a little dimmer, a little colder without the man who had always been there. And soon, I think it got meaner, too. The news of Adam's death would have spread to the cities and if Cain's family tortured Seth and his children before, Adam's death would have emboldened them. Not only was there one less voice restraining them, warning them not to rebel against God, but they could argue that if Adam didn't benefit from following God, if he still died, if everyone was going to die, what was the point? Why bother following God at all? I think that's what Seth may have had to face. He was probably the head of the family, now with Adam gone. But in the story, someone else stands out. Genesis highlights Enoch, Methuselah's father. And this sets up a comparison. Lamech, the polygamist and murderer, and Enoch were the same distance down the family tree. They were both part of the seventh generation of people on earth. Lamech followed pleasure and violence. And Genesis says Enoch walked with God. In the Greek version of Genesis, translated around 2300 years ago, it says that Enoch pleased God. But that misses a connection that might be here, because this isn't the first mention in Genesis of God walking somewhere. Just a couple of chapters earlier, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God came to spend time with Adam and Eve, but they disobeyed and couldn't stay in the garden with the tree of life in it. And now here, Six generations later, it says that Enoch has figured out how to walk with God again, how to have him as a constant companion. Enoch wasn't a monk or a recluse. He's quoted for his prophecies in the New Testament. So he was probably a preacher, someone who went out and tried to warn people about the disaster that was coming if they insisted on abandoning God. And he may have done this for 300 years until suddenly he wasn't on earth anymore. God took him. There's no description here, but later in the Bible, the same word is used to describe how Elijah, another prophet, went to heaven in a fiery chariot. So this probably wasn't a secret event. One commentary suggested people must have witnessed Enoch's departure because God rescued Enoch for a reason. God was showing them that there was an alternative to death. After Adam died, Enoch proved there was still hope. I imagine the scene of Enoch going to heaven was brilliant, but then came the darkness when the light faded. Just 57 years after Adam died, Methuselah was now more alone than ever. Seth's children were outnumbered perhaps four to one by Cain's descendants, and that's if all of them stayed faithful. In reality, the people following God, those who recalled Adam's stories and remembered Enoch's example, would soon be very rare. Methuselah had lived less than a third of his life. He had six centuries left. But things were about to get much, much worse. Lamech, the murderer who boasted about violence, had kids. Children who were probably just about Methuselah's age, just now getting into the prime of life. And those children would be the next titans of the world. Methuselah's life isn't yet half over, but with his father gone, perhaps he turned his attention to his son and his grandson, because his grandson was going to build a boat. Until the next episode comes out, if you're curious about the world's population during Methuselah's life, want to learn about long lifespans in ancient mythology, or you'd like to dig into anything I mentioned during the show, widerbible.com has articles, references, links, and show notes with tangents and background information that didn't fit into the episode. The website also has a place to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.